Hey, this is Melody coming to you from Crazy Town. While we're in between seasons, we wanted to share some bonus episodes with you. In this one, Rob interviews Peter Kalmus, the climate scientist, activist, and author. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, and you like the show, please give us a five-star rating. Also, if you want others to get the Crazy Town experience, please hit the share episode button and send it to people in your network. Now to the interview with Rob and Peter. Peter Kalmus is a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's got a PhD in physics from Columbia University and a BA in physics from Harvard. At work, he uses data and models to study boundary layer clouds. At home, he explores how reducing carbon emissions can lead to a happier, more connected life. Peter is the author of a really good book called Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution. Today, he's going to be speaking with me uh, on behalf of himself, not on on behalf of NASA, but uh, I'm really, really glad to have Peter here. I've been in conversation with you uh, a few times in the past, and I'm I'm glad to be on in conversation with you now. So welcome to Crazy Town. Thanks. I'm glad to be in Crazy Town with you, Rob. And uh, <laughs> I just I love the podcast so much. I'm a, a regular listener and a huge fan. Oh, thanks. That's uh, so. That's one. We got one out there. <laughs> that's that's, a, that's some good news. Um, Hey, I want to jump in, you know, while I've got a, a, a super smart climate scientist on the line, I got to start with this heat wave that, that smothered the Pacific Northwest, uh, Canada and the United States at the end of June. We, we broke these record high temperatures by huge margins. And this is a region where people don't have air conditioning and the ecosystem is not adapted to triple digit temperatures day after day. And I was in Portland and I, I, it had a really profound effect on me. And the climate scientists are, are kind of going nuts too. There was an article in Yale Climate Connections where a couple of your colleagues said it's not hype or exaggeration to call this heat wave the most extreme in world weather records. So I was wondering if you have a take on on what happened with that heat wave. <laughs> yes, I do. Well, wh- when it was happening, I was my jaw hit the floor. Basically, I I was really shocked by its intensity, and it took me by surprise. Over the last few years, I've been going through this process of adjustment where stuff that's happening. I, I've been completely alarmed by climate breakdown, let me just say this, for the last yeah. 15 plus years when I kind of first woke up and came out of like the normal walking around thinking everything was fine state. This was while I was a graduate student in physics, actually. And for some reason, before that period, I hadn't really, it hadn't really clicked in, in my brain uh, how how serious this was. So, so over 15, 16 years, I've gotten the severity of it. But nonetheless, I still had this sense that we wouldn't be seeing these kinds of crazy heat waves and these kinds of crazy fires in the the western uh, western part of North America um, and other climate impacts that we're starting to see the flooding in Europe right now, for example. I hadn't really expected that level of impact for maybe you know roughly a decade or so. So um, and I, and I hadn't that wasn't like my scientific estimate for when these things were coming. Which just sort of you know I'm a scientist, but I'm also just a human. Who has who has like specialties within climate science, and then sort of a subjective sense of how fast things are going, where we're going to be yeah. at at this point in the future, and so my subjective sense of uh, this level of impact 
got revised forward by at least a decade. And so now, and this started happening, you know, it happened to me uh, in real time about a year ago when we were experiencing unprecedented heat waves and fires in California. And there was a fire, the Bobcat fire, which took out about a third of the um, Angeles National Forest, the San Gabriel Mountains. So I live in Altadena, which is in the foothills of these mountains. And it was uh, it was threatening Mount Wilson, this famous astrophysical observatory where you know the expansion of the universe was first discovered by Edwin Hubble and it was a, and that's a couple of miles away from where i live so you know my we we went on a hike near Santa Barbara and it almost did me in with heat exhaustion because it was so hot and humid we were trying to escape the heat wave and i went like right into the worst of it it turned out and then like about the, a day later you know this bobcat fire started and we were getting evacuation warnings for our house and I sort of like lost it and I was just so stressed out by that to be living through something that I hadn't expected to be experiencing with my own body for for yeah. for some time in the future. And the Pacific Northwest heat wave was kind of the same same thing. Well, first of all, can I just say that I, I'm glad you made it through because the, the irony of climate scientists done in by by climate change, uh, you know, in the <laughs> yeah. in the in the proximity of this place, uh, you know, the observatory where where you've you know been doing some work like that that that's just too much to take. We were backpacking near Santa Barbara. That that was the worst part of it for me. So it was staying hot very, very late in the day. And it was like 5 p.m. and we were climbing. And I had like a backpack on, uh, you know, heavy backpack for camping. And it was just too much for my body. Like I couldn't get, I couldn't shed the heat quickly enough. And so we had to just stop. And I had to basically just lie in a little stream that we found uh, for a while. And then that put us back. We were late. We were trying to get to this campsite. So we were coming down later on in the dark, in the pitch black, this very, very steep mountainside. Uh, so it was very stressful. And even though it was pitch black, it was still super hot. And I, I had this sense that I wasn't like somehow wasn't connected to the atmosphere anymore. I was feeling nauseous and like, um, yeah. you know, every breath was make, kind of making me hotter instead of cooler. Wow. And so it was almost like the sense of panic that came in. So yeah. it was very, it was a very, it was my first probably kind of real experience with heat exhaustion like that. And it wasn't, wasn't fun. And then for like the next, I don't know, several weeks, four plus weeks, just in our house there, we were just covered in smoke from this fire. And so I was, yeah. you know, had, my lungs were hurting my airways were hurting it, it was a it just felt unhealthy you know felt had this weird tingling in my fingers which i it was it was a weird weird time yeah. and um the well, thing the thing that's really frightening to me is that people talk about the new normal and it's not the new normal it's a uh, it's we're on this escalator to hotter temperatures and worsening impacts that go along with those hotter temperatures so what we're experiencing now on the planet is just the beginning, and the the governments and the corporations aren't there. We 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 know we need to end the fossil fuel industry. There's no shortcut whatsoever, and it's not happening. We see politicians not willing to confront that. What to me is a just blazingly obvious truth, and yet they haven't even ended the subsidies, the taxpayer subsidies to the industry. So we're still giving government handouts to this industry that quite you know it's not exaggeration to say that it's killing the earth and it's uh threatening human civilization we're still subsidizing it so that's what that's what's freaking me out yeah it's it's unbelievably frustrating i yeah i i share that with you one of one of the things that struck me 
when I I first arrived in the Pacific Northwest, uh, like 14, 15 years ago, and you know I've been doing this kind of work around uh, sustainability and climate change, and I, I went to this talk by an IPCC climate scientist, and he was kind of looking at the geographic effects of 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 global warming and where it was going to have big effects. And I remember him saying, well, we're lucky here in the Pacific Northwest. This is one of the areas predicted not to really have that many problems. Um, you know, it might affect our agriculture was kind of the, the, the upshot yeah. uh, to some degree, which means we'll plant crops earlier or later or whatever. But, but then we've had the forest fire similar problems to what you're describing in California and this this heat dome problem. And, and then I read an article about Chicago recently. I read that uh, one was, too. Yeah. Yeah. And they were talking about how Lake Michigan is getting too much water at certain times a year, mm-hmm. causing flooding. It's getting too little water because of evaporation from higher temperatures, which is doing things like making wastewater flow back into the water supply and mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so basically the infrastructure is not up to the, the kinds of temperature changes. I mean, it, it seems like people, at least people who have accepted climate change, were worried about coastal areas, Miami, New Orleans, places like that. But uh, and, and even, of course, the desert areas in the southwest, Phoenix and Las Vegas. But th- there's basically nowhere to hide. Right. Even as we're speaking right now, Germany and Belgium are having catastrophic climate relating flooding and hundreds have already been verified as dead. You know, it's the kind of flooding where it's it looks like a river going down the street with cars yeah. floating and piling up on top of each other. And they can't it's the, the currents are too fast even to drive motorboats in. I mean, it is crazy. And so Germany is another place where I think they felt like they were fairly safe. And this was like kind of more of a global South problem. And yeah, I think this is the summer that the global North and the relatively global rich uh, people who live in the global North are realizing like, holy crap, no place is safe. Uh, And that's really, I think that's really true. And I'm glad we're, I don't know if this counts as sooner rather than later, but I'm glad we're learning it now. (laughs) Maybe I hope we are learning it. But it's a very, very important lesson to learn because, you know, as humans, I think we really struggle with with several things, right? And one of those is we struggle with empathy with people who don't really look like us, who aren't in the same economic stratum as us, who live far away. So when we see these kinds of floods in the global south and these heat waves in Pakistan, it's it's I think it's easy for the global rich to kind of be like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's their problem. It's already always doing it there. I'm glad I don't live there. And, and similarly, when you have the sense that these kinds of catastrophes are somewhere in the future, it doesn't, it doesn't even matter how far, just even a yeah. few years, I think our brains uh, so heavily discount knowledge, facts about the future that we can't, our brains don't really allow those facts to come into our emotional system, like our, I guess, our limbic system or something. And I think that's, that's my curse or maybe my superpower or something. When I see scientific facts about stuff that's projected to happen 10 years or by mid-century, I feel it in this present moment. And so then I'm constantly looking at it and it can be challenging to deal with that. But that's where my urgency comes from is this sense that, well, if we, it looks like we're, you know, governments and corporations aren't changing 
it looks like. There's no, not a lot of evidence that they're addressing this the way they need to. And then I see the science leading us to X, where X is somewhere in the future. And so I put two and two together, and it feels like X is now, right? Because it feels almost yeah. like... And so then I'm yelling, like, guys, we got to stop this, you know? And it feels like no one's listening. But that's, yeah. you know, that's the... That's what it's. That's the modern day Cassandra syndrome, right? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad you bring that up because I feel like climate scientists really are some of the most an- anxious people <laughs> around these days, and are are trying to yell. And you you see warnings, and and you know it sounds such doom and gloom. And you know, and we've been talking about some pretty doomish stuff here uh, already, but. I'm wondering, you know, what kind of conversations are you having with your colleagues? Are you guys now overtaking conservation biologists as the doomiest, gloomiest people in the room? Well, you know, I just had beer with some colleagues yesterday. And, you know, of course, we're cognizant of uh, tree immortality. We're cognizant of worsening forest fires. So I've been kind of shifting my own work towards more uh, biodiversity and like ecosystem impacts, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just going from like studying gravitational waves then to studying clouds. And then I just keep like a moth to the, to the, uh, to the sort of like uh, scary scientific flame. I just keep getting, you know, now I'm, I'm moving. I think I probably found, found my home, which is, um, looking at biological systems and ecosystems like coral reefs and uh, humans too. So just uh, coincidentally, I, I right before the heat dome happened in the Pacific Northwest, I just submitted a big proposal, so fingers crossed, to study the future of heat waves and like kind of translate the climate models, the, these big global earth system models, which can project temperature and humidity to the end of the century up to 2100. But then, you know, how do you use those coarse resolution projections? How do you translate that to human bodies and cities? You know, what's the threshold of temperature and humidity, uh, the wet bulb temperature, if you will, above which you start getting morbidity and mortality? How does that relate to uh, air conditioning availability? How does that relate to the urban heat island effect? So that was what the proposal was about. And then the, then the heat dome happened and I was like, oh, man, like, I think there's a lot that we don't understand here. And there's a lot that, in my opinion, that probably isn't being captured in the climate models. You know, maybe there's ways that teleconnections between the Arctic warming and between the Pacific Ocean warming that can lead to these sort of regional intense, relatively short in duration and and small in region, very, very intense events where it just feels like there's a magnifying glass almost focusing heat in this one area, right? And maybe is it possible that our models are tending to kind of average that out, or maybe they're not capturing all of these teleconnections. So so it's really caught me thinking, you know, and I haven't done that research yet. So I'm not an expert in heat waves yet. But that was my my impression when the heat dome was happening was like, wow, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff here that we don't understand and it could be a lot worse than we've been projecting because of that. And now I'm starting to learn that a lot of my colleagues, including scientists who are specifically studying heat waves, it seems like they're saying the same. Yeah. Yeah. I I often think we don't have the knowledge uh, out to a level that we think we do. I think that's true. And and then certainly we don't understand how all of this is going to interact with these complex human systems like infrastructure and geopolitics and agricultural and water systems 
climate migrants disrupting geopolitics, right? That's definitely yeah. not in our climate models, right? Right. <laughs> and, yeah, and the the, the infrastructure uh, has been really interesting. You know, in in Portland, there were roads buckling. They they had a plan to use mass transit to make it free so that people could get to cooling centers or places where there was AC and the trains and the streetcars couldn't run because they weren't designed to run at a temperature, uh, an ambient temperature above 110 degrees. And it yeah. it was past that. So uh, yeah. yeah, we're not, we're not real prepared, uh, obviously. I think all of this infrastructure stuff that's starting to break now, it's coming. I think it's coming as a surprise. When, when you know, you had the, uh, that, the, those impacts in the Pacific Northwest and these impacts that we were just discussing in Chicago and elsewhere, I don't see experts saying like, oh, yeah, we've been predicting this for 15 years. That right. this pre- I think it's going to – I think a lot of stuff that breaks is really going to take us by surprise. And this might be a good time to say that, you know, I am not – I'm not a doomer. Uh, I'm, yeah. I think I'm getting increasingly less optimistic. And my, my decrease in optimism comes maybe from two things. One, that this stuff does seem to be happening earlier than I expected. You know, and again, I haven't done like a quantitative, a quantitative analysis of past predictions to see exactly. I, I do know that Arctic sea ice extent and the ice sheets and a few other things have been kind of like historically under predicted the, the rates of change mm-hmm. for the, those things. But, but it is certainly subjectively or empirically seems like it's happening faster than what I kind of felt like it would happen. So that's one source of my kind of decrease in optimism. But really the main source is just that, like, what is it going to take, for example, to end fossil fuel subsidies? We've, we've got Democrats in charge of like, you know, the white house and in charge of Congress. And they still, not only can they not end fossil fuel subsidies, but it doesn't seem like they even want to. It's still part of their official policy platform to not end fossil fuel subsidies, let alone yeah. doing something. It's clear to me that we need a complete moratorium on any new fossil fuel infrastructure. And that seems far in the distant. That seems much harder to do than to simply end fossil fuel subsidies. Um, so that's that's where. But but I'm not a doomer because if I was a doomer, I would probably just uh, be all like depressed and lying on my couch and <laughs> watching Netflix and drinking a lot or something. And that's right. not what I'm doing. Instead, what I'm doing is I've, I'm you know trying to do everything I can to make a difference and to create change because I realize that however warm it ends up getting, however hot, much hotter the planet gets because of mainly because of fossil fuel emissions it would be worse if it got hotter than that, right? So if we end up, say, at two degrees of mean global surface heating, that's better than 2.1 degrees. And that would, if we end up at 2.1, it's better than 2.2. So it's no matter how bad things get, it's always worth fighting as hard as we can. So that's not, that's not doomism. Yeah, no. And I want to, I want to turn back a little bit to what you were discussing with, you know, politicians not really getting it at this point, corporations not getting it, not doing really what needs to be done. And what's it going to take? I mean, you know, it's clear that these crises, heat domes and floods and and more extreme storms have some effect on people. But the problem is most people are stuck in a very different worldview, a very different mindset. And I want to talk about uh, one of the chapters in your book, which is called Our Mindset. Again, that book is Being the Change for listeners who want to check that out. I found that chapter, Our Mindset, to be really thoughtful, insightful. 
in that chapter, you you focus on the myth of progress, which uh, we also did an episode on that topic this season in Crazy Town. Uh, I wonder if you can describe how the myth of progress maybe is is kind of at the the forefront of why we're not doing what's needed. Yeah, and uh, the uh, you know the modern sort of gods of the myth of progress are these billionaires, right? Look at them going into space on their spaceships. It's like it's like almost that's like a requirement to be a billionaire these days is to you know emit huge amounts of. Uh, you know, burn huge amounts of fossil fuel and contribute to warming the planet by going on these jo- joy rides to space. So um, yeah, yeah. Don't worry about <laughs> fixing the problem at hand. Try to uh, uh, evacuate the planet. And then even even the great, the late great Stephen Hawking. This was what really got me. He he genuinely believed that the way out of uh, global heating and the and the ecological catastrophe that we're careening headlong into here on Earth was to leave Earth and to go yeah. to you know Stephen Hawking, one of the greatest minds of, of our time, was completely indoctrinated in the myth of progress. So it's just it's mind boggling. It's so hard unimaginably hard on so many technological levels to have a sustainable, independent, uh, mass human presence on Mars, for example. It's just orders of magnitude easier to solve climate and ecological breakdown here on Earth. We we take this beautiful planet and this clean air that we can breathe and the water that we can drink and the food that we can eat and the, the livable, nice temperatures and the sun and the clouds. We take all of this for the shade of a tree. None of this stuff is on Mars, right? And it's yeah. mind-boggling how we just take it for granted here on Earth. Yeah, I uh, I know from your book that you were kind of a Star Trek geek as yeah. a kid. I, I'm more of a Star Wars guy, so we could fight that out later. I, but... loved, I loved them both, Rob. <laughs> okay, well... So, you know, like it's really seductive to believe in the the myth of progress and to think of, oh, yeah, one day we're, we're going to roll through the stars. And I love the imagination associated with that. And I can still see that, you know, there's no there's no air to breathe on these other planets. There's no you know, let's not there's not some magic button like in the movie Total Recall that's going to suddenly make an atmosphere no. on the planet. Like <laughs> how how in the world? Are we thinking that uh, that yeah, it's uh, some good idea to to jettison ourselves from this planet that that we were evolved to live on? We get movies like Wall-E. We get movies like Interstellar. It's a whole genre. Uh, there was one that was on, I think, Netflix, like during the lockdown with George Clooney. I can't remember what it was called, but the idea was like his pregnant daughter was in the spaceship and Earth was, they're, you know, and they're they're never climate. The the problem on Earth is never from climate change. It's always this like safely neutered uh, apocalypse that, that so, so that the, the watchers can feel like it's a fantasy. Like they don't have to confront the reality of climate change when they watch these, right? Like in interstellar, it was some kind of like mysterious agricultural collapse, right? But it wasn't climate change. And then they go through some wormhole and that's like the salvation of the human race. It's like our brains will do anything they can to avoid confronting the fact that we have to take a hard look at the fossil fuel industry and then also at capitalism and the way we've organized our society and the way that we live on this planet. And, um, you know, somehow the desire for comfort, the desire to feel like we're outside of nature, which is just ridiculously not true. Even if you're in, a, in an office building on the 31st floor, you're still in nature. 
you're still breathing air, right? <laughs> you still yeah. still have to drink water and eat food to live. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, somehow, yeah, the myth of progress and this myth of separation, which I think they're they're very interrelated uh, from nature, from each other, from other species, they they lead to taking this cosmically wonderful oasis that we call Earth for granted. And, you know, I think one of the things that has to happen and seems like, you know, fact, we, we don't respond to facts very much as a species. Uh, in my opinion, we're a deeply irrational species. And I, our operating system seems almost like it's kind of like religion. So I, I almost feel like, you know, there's been a rise in atheism and the myth of progress and the myth of separation have kind of come in because humans need some sort of deeper meaning uh, in order to kind of, I think, be happy and to not go insane with the knowledge that we're going to die eventually. So in the past, religion, I think, fulfilled that. And now more and more, this like, rah, rah, humans are great. We're so smart. We're going to colonize <laughs> the stars. That makes humans, that allows individual humans with these you know, crappy jobs that they hate to feel like they're part of something bigger. And that's a comforting thought, right? And so I think somehow we have to trans transition to a new story or maybe a new mythos which is that like, oh my God, this planet is beautiful. I'm in love with this planet. This food tastes amazing. And, you know, there's nothing that guarantees I'm going to be able to keep having this food. So I'm so grateful for it. You know, I'm so grateful that for the people that, that my friends and the people in my community that helped me live. That's the kind of story that I think we have to transition to is this deep sense of gratitude that I feel like a lot of indigenous peoples had as part of their culture as well. You know, when they... Yeah. When they killed a, a deer or an elk to eat it, they had a deep sense of gratitude because they, they didn't see the deer or elk as something to extract for profit and to sell. They saw it as basically as a person, another person that was giving its life for them. And so they had a deep sense of obligation and gratitude. And that's what I think we have to come back to. Yeah, it's like a, a reverence for life that's grounded in the realization that you're you're a visitor for a you know a relatively short time here, and exactly. and to uh, have that gratitude and enjoy it while you're there. I I yeah I try to make a practice of that as much as I can. And, you know, earlier you were talking about backpacking and camping. I mean, I think that's our modern way. Of, you know, for a lot of people, one of the modern ways of connecting with nature, of, of getting back out there, and just trying to have some sense of that. But uh, I I couldn't agree more. We've got to somehow basically start, like you're saying, telling ourselves a different story or maybe playing a different game. It's like we're really good at the game of, hey, let me see how much money I can get or let me see how how big and bad this company can be or, you know, or let me see if, in the government how much territory I can claim or, or control. And that's not the game we need to be playing anymore. Right. And this, this myth of progress is so related to capitalism, right? It's uh, something that comes in advertisements. It comes in this idea of you know, endless economic growth, this idea of trickle-down economics. And, you know, and the erosion of so social safety nets uh, by, by kind of capitalism and by the sense of like merit-based uh, individual you know, meritocracy. And right. if you're, if you're losing, if you're getting the short end of the stick on capitalism, you deserve that, right? Which is such right. BS, because uh, we know there's so many systematic problems here that are just getting worse, right? We're in a new gilded age. And the average black household in the United States, this is a mind blowing fact that everyone should know. The average black household has one tenth the wealth 
of the average white household in the U.S., which is just mind-blowing. And uh, without good social safety nets, people, a lot of people have to just struggle to just survive. And and so they don't, it's very hard for them to to have this kind of like change, the sense of gratitude that I'm talking about, because they just feel completely uh, their backs against the wall and they're dealing with all of this frightening, frightening stuff. And they feel really, you know, it's just think of the mental space, you know, the drug addiction is and overdoses are just massively on the rise, I think. So, um, you know, things like universal basic income, social safety nets, uh, social programs, policies that reduce this gross, gross financial inequality, uh, policies that lead to degrowth so that, for example, the billionaire wealth can start to be distributed and we could have things like better public education, better public transport. And then that gives some breathing space to people so they're not working 100 hours a week. We should be working less than 40 hours a week, in my opinion. You know, there's been all this productivity gain from automation, which has just been being converted into the billionaires getting richer and richer. So if that was distributed to everyone, we could be easily working 20, maybe 30 hours a week. And then that would open up space for things like gardening. And growing a little bit of food, you know, having a little bit of a little plot to grow some herbs in your windowsill, or if you have a little space outside, maybe growing a fruit tree or some tomatoes or something. That's one of the, in my experience, that's one of the best ways to start to develop this new sense of gratitude. You see this little plant growing and you're like, wow, it's like kind of a miracle that we even have food to eat. But you know, the way things are now, we're completely disconnected. We, we think the food comes from the supermarket, right? And we, we're not... Right. Connected well, to you, you, you're raising some really good points about uh, policies around um, equity and social justice that are entirely related to uh, the environmental problems we face. And it's like you can't solve our sustainability problems without making sure that, that, that we're all taken care of equitably. Uh, and I think that's, that's really important to think about those things on a kind of a grand scale, the the policies. But I also like how you you kind of moved it to a, a much smaller scale, like a household scale of how how we could be living differently. And that's a lot of what your book is about. And I I know over your career as you as you became more and more aware of the acute problem of climate change and how how quickly it's descending on us, you know you. You said about seeing how how congruent could you make your life at home with with these things that you were learning and, and came to know. So I was wondering if, you know, part of what we try to do with this podcast is uh, not just spew a bunch of problems. We try to talk about, <laughs> yeah. hey, what what could you what could you do? In fact, we had a, a segment called uh, the the George Costanza Memorial Do the Opposite, which was sort of like we explore a problem and now try to talk about, well, what could we do that's that's different if what we're doing is leading us down a destructive path? So I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, maybe a few or some of your favorite things that you took on in your life to to kind of to, to cut your emissions and become more congruent with with what you had learned about climate change. Yeah, well, you know, three of the biggest global drivers for our, the predicament that we're finding ourselves in now are definitely burning fossil fuels 
uh, deforestation and then animal agriculture. And, and those they're all linked together, right? Because a lot of the deforestation is driven by, especially in, for example, the Amazon is driven by the desire to raise beef, for example, for profit. So then, yeah, at every scale, I think we need to move away from those three things, including in our individual lives. There's been a lot of controversy about this, about calling for change in our individual lives. Um, there's a lot of climate activists, actually, who who are basically saying the opposite. They're saying, you know, I have a right to fly as much as I want. And um, you, it's, a, it's a bad messaging. We're not going to be able to grow the movement if, uh, if we call for these kinds of changes. And it's what the fossil fuel wants. Is, so the fossil fuel wins either way. If, if climate activists are saying, let's keep flying and burning fossil fuels, guess what? The fossil fuel industry is happy. And if, the fo- and if, if all the climate activists are saying, you know, it's, it's, it's all like our fault, it's not the fossil fuel industry's fault, they're happy too. So, so you have to be very careful about how you frame this. Um, I would say for me, uh, the main reason I, I try to burn as little fossil fuel as I can and I don't eat meat anymore. And for a while I was vegan, kind of during COVID, I couldn't get my oat milk and I sort of slipped off the vegan bandwagon a little bit and I want to get back on it. So it's been a little bit of struggle to completely stay off of the dairy products, but I vastly reduced it. The, re- the main reason I do this stuff is because it just feels really bad to me to know that I'm voluntarily contributing to these these this this predicament to, to, to global heating when like that there's very easy things I could do to to not contribute. So if I have a choice between getting on a plane to go for a vacation or to go for a vacation in, in the Sierras, which is close to where I live, why wouldn't I pick not getting on the plane and going on a vacation close by, for example? So so for me, it's just kind of a no-brainer. I, I see very clearly the relationship between burning this fossil fuel and global heating and people literally dying now and non-humans dying, trees dying, coral reefs dying, salmon dying up in the Pacific Northwest because the streams are too hot. So for me, there's a very, very direct link. And if I got on the plane the whole time, I would be, I think I would be nauseous. I might actually throw up, not from motion sickness, but from the sense of contributing to that and feeling like I was selfishly jeopardizing the future of my kids and other people's kids, for example, just so I could go on vacation, right? I don't, I wouldn't enjoy that vacation at all. So that's the main reason is it just feels disgusting to me. And so I take reason. I haven't, you know, I don't think it's useful for me to get super obsessive and pour all of my energy into like trying to get down to zero. And I think if I did, uh, people wouldn't listen to me as much and they wouldn't take me as seriously. But, but you know, one thing it does do is it really, for me, makes it clear how the systems we've created, the transportation systems, the food systems, et cetera, you know, the, the clothes systems for buying clothes and whatnot, for being on the internet, the electrical systems. It's very hard for us to live without kind of like going into a cave and completely checking out from society, in which case no one would even have access to your thoughts, right? Without doing that, you're trapped to some level to be uh, in this in this modern society that is basically run on fossil fuels. But there's still a lot. You, it's it's easy to go from the U.S. average, which which is something like 15 or 20 metric tons of CO2 equivalent emissions per year. Really easy to go from that down to about two without even trying that hard. And then Europe's at like maybe seven or between six and eight on average. A lot of places in the in the global south are much less because they just don't have money to spend on burning a lot of fossil fuel. So it's it's really 
there's no excuse for being at 15 or 20 and then billionaires. I, I think a lot of them are probably going well over 100, probably well, well over 100 tons per year. So there's no excuse for that. And you very re, taking very reasonable actions that I describe in my book, you can go less. And then, you know, I have no delusions that doing this is going to solve these global problems that we're, again, careening into, that we're just like sliding down this slope, this mudslide into these really bad global problems. So I, don't, I know that what I'm doing personally isn't going to change that. But on the other hand, it's made me much more powerful as an activist. It's, uh, it's what helped. It was kind of like a core part of my book. I think it's part of why my book got a lot of attention. And I think it makes my messaging, like I'm, I'm basically saying, I have no, absolutely no hesitation to say that we're in a climate emergency and that we have to treat this all hands on deck. This has to be humanity's top priority. And I think there would be some hesitation, maybe some guilt or shame if I wasn't making these reasonable steps, taking these re- just steps anyone could take to sort of make little reductions. So, yeah. so yeah, it's, it's empowering to me, I think, as an activist. It helps shift the culture. It helps send the message that this stuff, burning this fossil fuel, it really is a deadly, a deadly substance and burning it yeah. really is causing this global heating. And so, you know, just feels better to, 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 to kind of not, you know what, I, there's no, I don't want other people to feel guilty. That's not what I'm trying to do. Right. I'm just trying well, to say that I don't like it. I don't like burning the stuff. So I try not to. That's it. That's yeah, really I, I, <laughs> I think two two things strike me from from your response there. I mean, one is that what you're saying is we and we say this too in Crazy Town a lot is you got to kind of stay in this strange space, this strange mental space, this strange physical space where you know, you're not dropping out and and you know, building a, a stick cabin in the woods and and living some hermit life where Maybe your your emissions go down to zero, but what are you doing to help? It it doesn't, you know, you have the ability to 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 do some things that are helpful. We're also the the other thing is uh, I totally agree with you on the hey we can do these things in our lives. It doesn't solve the problem, but I think any action that you take to to limit your emissions to change your mindset to change your behavior is useful action on a number of fronts i mean least of which is your own mental health you know mm-hmm. being congruent in your actions with absolutely. what you know is yeah. is huge yeah, the absolutely. other is we we never get big changes in society you know we we like to lionize sort of one person did this one thing and then there was this huge change. But that's not really the way things work. The way it works is everybody's pitching in and it's all of that pitching in that maybe leads to that that pivotal moment, that that tipping point where, you know, suddenly you've got a civil rights movement that actually becomes codified in law. And same, I think, the, the story here on climate. We need you, we need, uh, you know, we need everybody doing their part of it. And it builds into a, a much bigger movement, which then gets the larger 
actions on the larger stages. So I, I really appreciate that you do that. That's right. I mean, we have to understand that we are mammals walking around this planet. So we are individuals. We can make decisions. You can wake up in the morning and you can decide to join a climate activist organization, or you could decide to start a new climate activist organization if you think there's a need that isn't being met by the current ones. Or you can decide to write a book, or you can decide to start a podcast, or you can decide if you're a lawyer to shift into environmental law. There's any one of us, there's many, many paths that we could take. And so, you know, there's this there's this complicated two-way feedback relationship between individuals and our collective as, you know, um, communities and as uh, cities and as a spe ultimately as a species, right? So there's no hard, there's no bright line between so-called it, Greta was an individual and she's, she contributed to a movement, right? She, she supercharged yeah. the climate movement. It was really not doing too well before Greta and then other, you know, other movements came up, you know, someone had to decide to start Extinction Rebellion, right? It didn't just happen sort of somehow out of nowhere, right? So the, these collective, all these collective things that happen, they start from individuals deciding to do them. And so I think, yeah, you don't want to limit your individual response to climate change to just riding a bike or just flying less. I think those are great things to do. And they, I think they feel great and you get healthier and you have, you know, you get to spend more time in your community if you're not flying all the time and you get to spend more time with your family if you're not flying all the time. So there's a lot of co-benefits, but at the same time, there's a lot more you can do than just reduce your fossil fuel emissions. You know, a lot of activism stuff. And I think you you have you can't see your whole path, for example, as a climate activist or how you might contribute to creating change until you start taking steps. It's like if you're backpacking, it's you can't see the peak of the mountain until you get over this rise and you get over this rise. So you have to start down some path. And uh, one of the most accessible ways to start is, I think, to take these reasonable steps to reduce your emissions. Just don't do it with the wrong idea that you're going to somehow solve all of these problems, because then you'll quickly realize how how big the global emissions are and how little your changes are, little bites you're taking out of it, and you'll get depressed. So you have to do it for the right reasons. Yeah, but I, it's like it's like a it's like a wave that we're surfing on, right? That's what culture is. You to create change, you want to be on the front of that wave. You want to be pushing the boundaries a little bit. You don't want to be like way you know, 50 years ahead of your time necessarily, because then people won't even be listening to you. They won't be able to understand what you're doing. But you want to be ahead of it. You want to be ahead of the curve, not behind it. Because the people behind it who are like waiting for other people to make these kinds of changes, I think they're literally holding things back. And it's the people that are kind of surfing on the front of it that are exploring new changes, both socially and in terms of energy systems and transportation and whatnot. They're the ones that are driving the change. Yeah. It, you know, I like your surfing metaphor and I like the idea of cycling as one of the little things in your life you can do that, that I know you're, you, you've you spent a lot more time on the bike. And I, I love that too. The, the reason I bring this up is I think a lot of this is about fun as well. I mean, if you, look, we all know that climate change, sustainability crises, these are heavy, heavy subjects. Uh, you know, you can sit there and, and kind of spin out in your own head trying to think, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? But by taking even some small actions, I think you can you can have fun with it, too, along the way. Like, it's fun to ride bikes. I, I really get a kick out of it and enjoy it. But, yeah, I think 
that's something that I also appreciated out of your book is you made these changes and it it actually can turn out in your favor from from the, the stance of having fun and, and being a little bit happier. You you connect to community more too because you sort of slow down a little bit. And for example, one of the fascinating things, well, if you're biking, you know, you're waving to people, you're seeing people yeah. that are walking, that are, you know, outside and you get to see what they're doing in their yards, kind of. You feel the air kind of going past you. It's, it is just an intrinsically joyful thing to do, I think. Like, yeah. I could be feeling blue, and then if I get on a bike to, like, ride to work or something, I just start feeling better. And it sets up my day to be much better. Like, it's just, I don't know what it is. It's uh, probably something physiological. And then, um, you know, also growing food. Uh, again, it's not the, it's not going to save us, but it's a good, it's at least going in the right direction. And it's fascinating how much that draws you into community, too. Like, you'll find out which neighbors around you are growing food too. And maybe there's like a kind of, uh, you know, zucchini or you don't have the seeds for it. And so you ask your neighbor and they give you a few seeds and then they'll come and ask you. And then when you have too much zucchini, you give it to other neighbors who maybe aren't growing food yet and they like it and they makes them think maybe they'll try to do it. They start talking to you and asking you questions about your garden. So it's uh, if you grow in the front yard, I used to get people that would walk by and they would just stop and admire my garden and talk to me about it if they saw me. And, uh, uh, and I would tell them, you know, ask, they could pick a fruit if they wanted, you know, and so it's just a fun way to engage in community more. And it is, there's a lot of fun that comes from there for me though. I, I hope before I die, this is one of my deepest hopes is that I can, that, that I can live long enough to see humanity start coming away from going down the wrong path, this consumerist path and this capitalist path of just wanting to get rich at any cost and this sort of celebrity path where, you know, only a few people can kind of make a living at music, for example. And we start to kind of relocalize and we start to have policies that that help the working class people and not the billionaires. And we start to come away from this crazy economic structure that we have. And we start to we start to realize that this we're sharing this planet with other species and we start to leave more for them. And we start to see fisheries rebound and we start to see ecosystems rebound, even even amidst worsening climate catastrophes, even amidst heat waves getting worse and floods getting worse and coastal areas being abandoned and more climate migrants leaving the global south because it gets too hot and they can't grow food anymore. So even despite the, 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 let's face it, I mean, we have to be realistic. No matter how fast we go now as a society at, at, at you know, stopping doing, stopping digging this hole that we're digging, the atmospheric fraction of CO2 and other greenhouse gas hole that we're digging, no matter how fast we stop digging that hole and then start coming out of it, these catastrophes that we're starting to live through now, they will get worse. But, but to me, there would be such a sense of joy. Talk about meaning, right? Like the myth of progress being, or, or maybe a redefinition of progress, right? Progress not being billionaires mm-hmm. going to space, but instead progress being human beings respecting other animals and admiring other animals and leaving space for them and starting to, to respect, you know, indigenous peoples and the wisdom there and the practices there and to to start respecting this earth and to coming to this sense of gratitude, maybe new kind of eco-religions forming where it's all about, you know, growing food and not using fossil fuels and just being in love with this planet. So that kind of a transition to more community, to feeling like we really are in this together, 
there's no guarantee that that will happen. There's a much darker path that our species could go on, like this authoritarian path where borders close and you, there's not enough food for everyone's. So, so it, to me, I think there's this, we're at this like really deep and maybe frightening crossroads where we have to pick one of those paths or the other, basically. And if we can push, just nudge things, all of us working together to go on that better path where we're, we're willing to not just hoard things for ourselves, but we're, we're willing to say like, wow, these other people, they, they need help. And I have more than I need. And this sense that I, I don't know how to, somehow we're just on the wrong path now. And there's just all this hate. And if we can, if somehow we can, can start coming to this new story, this new narrative of like the earth is hammering us because we were living the wrong way. And we lost, we lost this sense of joy of being on this planet. And we started just like going into our phones and like catatonically staring at them and being bored all the time and being frustrated and feeling like our lives had no meaning. We went and, and because of all of that, the, the earth started hammering us with all of these climate related uh, you know, things that maybe we start waking up as a species and growing up and transitioning into this sort of adulthood of our species. To me, that would be the most joyful thing of all. Like, I, I want to see that happen. Yeah. I want to be a part of that. And that to me, that would be real progress. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a lovely vision. Uh, you know, the idea that that we basically get into right relationship with ourselves and with the planet and, and with each other. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm all in on that vision <laughs> with you. And uh, I, I really want to thank you for stepping up beyond just doing your, your work and your career to sounding the alarm more, but also providing ideas for people to, to make changes in their mindset, make changes in their lives and, and really think about how do we how do we solve these problems and and what's a vision for for how we live and so that, it's really amazing work uh, so thanks so much Peter for for joining me here in Crazy Town really appreciate it well it's a pleasure talking to you always Rob and uh, and thank you also for your part in uh, creating this new vision. That's our show. Thanks for joining us in Crazy Town. This is a program of Post Carbon Institute. Get more info at postcarbon.org. 